just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It's Wednesday. Lots of stuff happening. I got to be honest with you, my fingers aren't on the pulse like they normally are because I'm on vacation, if you will, with my wife. We're celebrating our 39th wedding anniversary and we decided to go someplace we've never been before. My wife loves the fall colors and we have that in Minnesota and Wisconsin that we've witnessed many times, but we thought, fuck it, we'll go to New England and see where it's supposed to be the most impressive. So we got on a plane and went to Burlington, Vermont. Never been here before. It's New England. Uh, and the colors are beautiful. And the town is very quaint and very nice. The whole area is wonderful. I mean, it's a very blue state, so you don't see much as far as the Trumplifox. I did see one house with a Confederate flag. I'm sure they're very popular in this state. And one house with a Trump 2024 flag. But those are the only two things I've seen. No other signs of Trumplifox anywhere to be found in Vermont. Now, as I said, my wife and I like to go out and explore, go places we've never been before. And, of course, Burlington, Vermont, never been there before. The other day we went to, we drove over to uh, Lake Placid. So I've told you that's kind of a mecca mecca to my wife, and I guess to me too, because that's where the 80 Olympics, uh, Winter Olympics, were held. And, of course, um, the hockey team won the gold medal, and it was a big thing. We talked about that yesterday. And I was really impressed with Lake Placid. Very quaint, very nice town. I'd like to go back there sometime when I had a few days to stay there, because it seems like a very nice place. And later today, we're going to go on a deep dive into Burlington. We really haven't done that as yet. We went to Stowe, which is about 30 miles away from uh, Burlington. And today we drove out to, actually yesterday, we drove out to Montpelier. Now, those of you that (laughs) know your geography know that Montpelier is the capital of Vermont. But it's not a very big city. It's like seven, 8,000 people. Very quaint, very nice not as uh, entertaining as Burlington. Burlington has a lot more stuff to do, but a nice place nonetheless. Now, the one thing my wife and I do as well as travel to different places that we aren't, we've never been to before. Uh, we kind of have an avocation of going out to restaurants. We're old. That's what we fucking do. Go out to restaurants and we try different things all the time just to get a sense of what was going on and and what some of these restaurants were like. And I, I've told my wife, I said, you know, what we need to do is to do a vlog or a TikTok or something reviewing restaurants because we go to so many restaurants all over the country. Well, my wife's not too keen on being on camera. And uh, my time's a little tight. I got TikToks. I got the podcast. Those are my priorities. So I don't really feel like starting a new project at this point. That said, we did that in Montpelier. 
yesterday. We went to a restaurant we've never been to before because we'd never been to Montpelier. Now, I will tell you this about my wife and I. We are connoisseurs of hamburgers. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not talking about filet mignon or anything special. We go to a lot of places and we have a lot of hamburgers. And I've run into a lot of places that claim to have the best hamburgers, and they're good. But for my money, the best hamburger I had ever had is a place called Lion's Tap in Minnesota, in Eden Prairie. It's in a southwest suburb, and it is an outstanding hamburger. The seasoning, the way it's prepared. This is a restaurant that only make hamburgers and uh, fries and drinks. That's all they. That's all they sell, and it is outstanding. I had yet to find a place that compares to Lions Tap. Of course, in my personal opinion, and in my wife's personal opinion too. Well, yesterday while we're in Montpelier, we're looking for a place to eat, and we were going to go to this Italian place, but we couldn't get there. There was some construction. So we found this other place. It was called Buddy's Famous. Just a small restaurant. I walk, I drive up, and it says specialties are hamburgers, fries, and uh, and uh, shakes. <laughs> I'm thinking, that's right up my fucking alley, right up my wife's alley. So we're going in there, and we go in there. So there was a young man at the cash register, and I said, what, what, what makes Buddy so famous? He goes, well, the hamburgers. I go, they're pretty good, right? They're fucking outstanding. I said, okay. And uh, I said, I'll take a double cheeseburger. And he looks at me, you'll love it. I said, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. We'll see what happens. He goes, do you want fries? I said, yeah, I want fries. He goes, do you want the fries with the gravy and the cheese curds? I said, what? Now, what he's talking about is poutine. And as much as I kind of know what it was, it's big in Canada and such, and other states. It's not in my state, Minnesota. You don't you don't find poutine very much. But I'm sitting there thinking I'm having a double hamburger. What could go with that better than fries with gravy over the top and <laughs> cheese curds? I said, "Fuck, I'm in." And my wife looked at me like, "You are crazy. This is not a good move." So anyway, I got the hamburger, and I got to tell you, the first thing I notice about a hamburger is, was it handmade, or was it a frozen burger they just slapped on the grill? And these were handmade. They were actually a little bigger than uh, what I'm used to getting at the Lion's Tap in Minnesota. But, God damn it, I got to tell you, they were comparable. I don't know if I could say they were better or worse they were good, but in a little different way. They weren't seasoned quite the same way, but they were fresh and they were outstanding. No fucking wonder Buddy is so famous for his hamburgers. Only place I've ever seen it is Montpelier. So if this if this gives you an interest in trying the hamburgers, you got to get to Montpelier, Vermont. But it was outstanding. It was fucking outstanding. <laughs> I'm doing a podcast about politics, and uh, I give you a food review. That's impressive. Anyhow, I also wanted to bring something else up, too. I'm a little annoyed by TikTok. A while back, I did a live on TikTok, as I occasionally do. And I did it differently this time because I recorded it and put it up as a podcast, and you may have listened to it. I thought it was interesting. 
The podcast went like two hours and 15 minutes. It went pretty well. There were a bunch of trolls popping in, and then my moderator showed up and kicked their ass out. Went cool. Went through the whole thing. Wasn't taken down. Nothing. It went really well. And then a couple of days ago, I get a notification says that uh, my live was taken down for whatever infraction. I'm going, dude, I finished the live. I went through the whole live. Nobody did anything. So what they're telling me is that they took this live down after the fact because some Trump fuck got in there, got mad, and decided to try to take it down. We're going to see more of this stuff as we get closer to the uh, midterms because these Republicans are getting nervous. They don't like hearing the truth or facts, but fuck them. We're going to keep doing it. And then... I put a couple of TikToks up this afternoon. And, you know, I have a fair amount of followers, so, you know, they immediately get views. And I can get as many as 30,000, 40,000 views on one, one video. But up until tonight, neither one of these two videos had any views. And then all of a sudden, now one of them has like 3,300 views, the other one has zero. Now, I'm guessing this is a glitch with TikTok. That's why I'm not getting too hyped up about it. But I'm getting a little annoyed by TikTok. Taking down a live two days after the fucking fact, you know, and counting against me. And these TikToks they're dicking around with, too. This is why I do the podcast. Because nobody controls anything here except me and you, if you want to. Anyhow, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with TikTok, if I'm going to kind of lay back on it a little bit or not. I don't know. Anyhow, let's get down to getting. (laughs) I've got one email to read, and that comes from Paul. Paul says, thanks for mentioning the $3 million ploy Trump used to meet his interest payment obligation. The end result was a $60,000 fine equivalent to Mar-a-Lago Secret Service agent's room for one weekend. Bring up how Trump lied to the New Jersey Gaming Commission when refinancing the casinos. He said that he would never use junk bonds to fund his projects. He probably used a a Russian junk bond. He, He gave me the words. I can't read that shit. Finally, the money laundering issue where Trump organization paid $10 million to settle Trump Taj Mahal Associates LLC agreed to the assessment of $10 million civil penalty by the Treasury Department and Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. This was just prior to $25 million to make Trump University go away. Yeah, he's a great businessman, isn't he? It is sad that Trump supporters do not take these incidents when the measuring uh, when when measuring the man. The Trump zealots will never see past the magical orange glow, but surely there must be a portion of Trumpers who can see, analyze, think, and conclude. Thanks again for your podcast, Paul. And you know he's absolutely right. There's so many glaring examples of Donald Trump's criminality, Donald Trump's corruption. Donald Trump's ineptitude, incompetence, it's all right there for anyone to see. But for whatever reason, many Trump followers either don't see it, don't comprehend it, or just don't care. And I think the latter is the case. They just 
They don't fucking care if Donald Trump is a piece of shit. He's their guy, and they're going to follow him no matter what happens. Uh, But I I thank you for that, Paul. I mean, there's so much corruption going on with Donald Trump. It's, it's, It's like part of his business plan for everything. It's not just starting a business. How can I scam the system? How can I make more money by cheating? That's always been the case with Donald Trump, will always be the case with Donald Trump. And he did the same thing while he was president of the United States. If you don't find that scary, well, you're not paying attention or you're too dumb to fucking grasp it. I just heard something on TikTok, too. I haven't been able to verify this or look into it, but the creator who delivered it is pretty trustworthy, so I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to look into it. We'll talk more about it tomorrow. But I understand that um, Deutsche Bank was raided by German prosecutors, and they also raided the homes of 10 people as part of Deutsche Bank. Now, we've talked about Deutsche Bank before. Deutsche Bank is where Donald Trump got all of his money. And as I told you in the previous podcast, they're even trying to step away from Donald Trump because they know he's trouble. Which is saying something because Deutsche Bank is a place that's already been run through the rigor, uh, ringer for uh, laundering money from Russia. It's kind of interesting that we'll hear that they're laundering money from Russia when Donald Trump is so friendly with the Russians. As I've said previous podcast, I think Russia paid Donald Trump, got him the money through Deutsche Bank. And now we hear they've been raided, and even some of the individuals in Deutsche Bank have been raided. Well, I wonder what they're going to find. i got to think that there's going to be some of uh, Donald Trump's fingerprints on some of that shit, And that can't be settling too well in Donald Trump's mind. Deutsche Bank is a corrupt organization. There's no question about it. They've been taken to task so many times. And uh, I once had a house that had a mortgage with Deutsche Bank. It didn't start out with Deutsche Bank. Uh, It started out with another bank, and they sold it, and they sold the mortgage, and it ended up with Deutsche Bank. At the time, I didn't know much about them. (laughs) <laughs> Had I known what I know now, uh, I don't know what I would have done, but I wouldn't have felt too comfortable with my mortgage in the hands of a place such as Deutsche Bank. All right. Joe Biden came out with something yesterday, which is actually good politics. President Joe Biden promised, promised to codify Roe v. Wade into law if Democrats managed to add seats and hold control of the House of Representatives in November, making it the first bill he would send to the new Congress. Well, no shit. That should be the first thing you send to Congress. If you get some extra room in the Senate, you hold on to the House, you get that fucker codified. I mean, let's be honest. The Democrats had another chance to codify it back in the Obama years. But they were busy, you know, they had other shit. They didn't think it was going to be a problem, so they just didn't do it. Well, here we are in 2022, and it's a big motherfucking problem. They're almost a little late to the party here. 
because at this point there are women suffering with abortion bans in respective states throughout the country. Now, had they codified it when Obama was in office, we would have never gone through this. But Biden's on the right track. You know, we've got the midterms coming up. The abortion issue is a big one in terms of getting votes in the midterms. We know that 70% of the country supported Roe v. Wade. All these people that supported Roe v. Wade know the Republicans are responsible for overturning Roe v. Wade. This is something that's going to take its toll on Republicans in the midterms. So Joe Biden needs to spotlight that, which he did by saying this, by simply stating the obvious. I mean, if they haven't learned a lesson by now, meaning the Democrats, what the fuck? You should have done this some time back, but now that you're here and the fire has already started, now Joe Biden's saying, yep, that's the first thing I'm going to do. No shit, motherfucker. You better do that the first thing. And then there's some other things you need to do as well, like getting the voting rights thing done, like getting gun control done, like dealing with police departments all across the country. You got a lot to do. If they hand you the House and the Senate in the midterms, You better get down to fucking business because you got two years to do it. That should be enough. But there should be no standing around and dicking around anymore. Now, I'm sure some of you are saying, why are you picking on Joe Biden? I'm not picking on Joe Biden. I'm doing what I think we need to do should the midterms go the way of the Democrats. We don't let down our guard at all. We don't stop the push. Whether it be the Republicans or the Democrats, we need to push them. They need to know that we care and that if they don't do some shit, things are going to go wrong for them in the elections in the future. This is our job to make sure our representatives are accountable and doing exactly what we want them to do. Now, Biden made the pledge at a Democratic National Committee event Tuesday afternoon at the Howard Theater in Washington on a stage surrounded by pro-choice supporters and a huge banner that read, Restore Roe. The president promised to sign the legislation on January 22, 2023, the 50th anniversary of the original Roe decision. He said, uh, here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill I will send to Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade, Biden said. And when Congress passes it, I will sign it on January 50 years after Roe was first decided by the law of the land. So, again, this is a very smart move by Joe Biden. He needed to do something like this, and it brings the... um, Roe v. Wade being overturned to the forefront. It brings it into the narrative. It reminds all these people that were upset by overturning Roe v. Wade that it's still overturned because, you know, motherfuckers forget shit real fast, real quick, real easy. And hopefully this will put some urgency in the people that are planning to get out and vote in the midterms and maybe light a fire under those folks that weren't planning to vote in the midterms. As I've said before, the key to this midterm election is turnout, and that means turnout for the Democrats. They have to turn out in unprecedented numbers. 
There's a lot of things working against the Democrats with uh, gerrymandering and voter suppression and all this stuff. But they can't really do much if there's an immense turnout for votes. Too many people going to vote for them to pull off any of their bullshit like they plan. So Joe says, if you give me the House, give me a little more room in the Senate, we will then codify Roe v. Wade. Now, in spite of the fact that they should have done that maybe 10 years ago, uh, at least they're planning on doing it now. A little late, but at least they're planning on doing it now. That is the first thing we need to do when uh, the Democrats hold on to the House and extend their margin in the Senate. And at least Joe Biden has made that claim. His feet will be held to the fire As soon as the election is over and we get into January when all the changes are being made with the uh, people in Congress, it's time to get down to business and codify Roe v. Wade. I presume that will happen, but he's kind of putting the onus on all of us. He said, I will do that. I will definitely do that. But only if you give me the votes in the House and the Senate. I said this a long time ago. Everything in the future of this country is based on how these midterms go. We dodged a bullet when Joe Biden beat Donald Trump because had Donald Trump won, we would have been in all kinds of trouble. So we're a little better off than we were prior to the 2020 election. But we're still in immense danger uh, in terms of the democracy in this country. We could still lose it. And I know that sounds like uh, very dramatic, but it's true. I mean, we're we're hearing things out of the Republicans that are basically things you would hear out of the mouth of fascists. And that's not what this country is about. If you want to save the country, you got to get up, get off the couch, get out of bed, get out of your car and fucking vote. If you don't do anything else in November you got to vote on November 8th. It is going to be extremely important. Let's put Joe Biden to the test. Let's give him the votes in the House and the Senate, and then let's push him hard to make sure he does what he says he's going to do in codifying Roe v. Wade. But he's right. That is the bottom line. That is the most important thing he has to address right now. And as I've said before, once they win the midterms, They've got two years with a lot of room to do some things. I mean, if they get to the point where the Senate uh, is a wide enough margin, I'd love to see them get rid of the filibuster. I'll be perfectly honest. The Democrats love the filibuster as much as the Republicans when they're in the minority. So within the majority, of course they want to cancel the filibuster, but if they should end up in the minority, you better bet that the Democrats will be fighting that filibuster and blocking everything the Republicans have done. As I've said about the filibuster, yes, it's dangerous if you cancel the filibuster and the Republicans get in and they pass a bunch of stuff. Yeah, that sucks. But if the filibuster is intact, they can't pass anything, the Democrats can't pass anything, and it's always a fight. But the only people that suffer in this thing are you and I, because nothing gets done. Things that need to get done in this country do not get done. 
So we'll see what the uh, Democrats do. It's on us to give them the votes, give them the House, give them the Senate with a little more room, and then we can start demanding stuff. And then we can expect the Republicans to be shitting themselves. They're going to have a lot of problems if they lose the House and the Senate in November because it's going to make it that much harder for them to put a presidential candidate up in 2024. Who's it going to be? It's not going to be Donald Trump. No fucking way. I don't even think it's going to be Ron DeSantis. He's going to have problems two years is a long time from now. So who are they going to put up there? And who are the Democrats going to put up? But if the Democrats spend the next two years doing a lot for this country, helping the country, helping the people that need the money, that need the health care, that need the insurance. If they help those folks, it's going to be hard to beat a Democrat in 2024. And the Democrats know that. After the midterms, they're going to have to get working hard to pass as much shit as they can. And if they do that, well, then it's going to be hard to imagine a Republican winning. Not to mention the fact, this is something I've mentioned before, the Republicans have really split their party. You have the base, the 30% or so, the base that are fucking nutcases, and then you have uh, kind of the um, normal-minded Republicans. And I don't even know how many of them there are because they all seem to have sided with Donald Trump up to this point. But if you get normal-minded Republicans and they decide not to go the way of the white supremacists and the anti-Semites, the misogynists, the uh, fascists, if they decide not to go that way, that's going to cause a lot of problems for the Republicans. And that's one of the reasons why I think the midterms aren't as dangerous as a lot of people are making them out. Now, I could be wrong, but if we've already split the party and everything about the party that's come out has gone against them, make them look bad and cost them votes, I just don't see how they're going to win, you know, short of cheating. But we can avoid them cheating by getting out in huge numbers. And uh, that's, that's what we fucking should do. And I think that's what we will do. People are afraid enough at the thought of losing their democracy that they will get out and vote like they did in 2020. Remember, Biden got 81 million votes, more votes than any presidential candidate in history. And actually, even Donald Trump had 74 million votes. And had it not been for Biden, that would have been the most votes for a presidential candidate. So a lot of people got out. A lot of people were nervous and scared, and Biden won. I think we'll see much of the same uh, in in the midterms. I think people are just as fearful. I think they're angry. You know, like I said, with overturning Roe v. Wade, that's going to be the game changer for the Democrats. There is nothing that these Republicans can do to stand on overturning Roe v. Wade and have it be beneficial to them when 70% of the country believed in Roe v. Wade. So they're in all kinds of problems at this point. We still don't know what's going to happen. And as I said yesterday, there's no reason to bite your fingernails and hope against hope. I believe the Democrats will win on November 8th. But if they don't, we just have to figure out what our next step is. It ain't over till it's over. And ultimately, good will win out. Evil will fail. That's always the case. Look at fucking Donald Trump right now. All right, we are going to take a break.
and we will be right back. You know, over the last year, I've been watching the Republicans, and it's almost like they're trying to lose, or so it would seem, like, for example, overturning Roe v. Wade before the midterms. That makes no sense. Why would you do that? But they did. They knew it wasn't going to help them in the elections, but still they did it. And then somebody like Rick Scott, who's in charge of trying to get more Republicans elected in the Senate, comes out with his 11-point plan. And in that plan, he's talking about ways to get rid of Medicare and Social Security and the like. Now, why would why would you bring that up? When he did bring it up, of course, Mitch McConnell said, shh, don't, don't, don't say the quiet stuff out loud. And now we're hearing more about this. We're hearing more out of the Republicans, and we're hearing more out of the media about this Social Security and Medicare thing. And I'm wondering why that is. First of all, why are the Republicans talking about it? That makes no sense. That is not going to work in their favor. Their constituents count on Social Security and Medicare. That cannot help them at all. And why is it playing such a big role in the media? And I have to wonder if the left-side media isn't playing this out with the intention of scaring the Democrats to get them out to vote. I I don't know if that's the case, but I can't think of any possible reason why this would be in the forefront and why this wouldn't be kept quiet by the Republicans. It makes no sense. Now, there's a story out that says if Republicans win control of the U.S. House of Representatives next month, a lot of people think they will, they could hold the government's credit hostage to force spending cuts, including to programs like Social Security and Medicare. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think this is a scare tactic. There is no way anybody, Republican or Democrat, is going to get away with cutting Social Security and Medicare. That's just not going to happen. There's too many people in this country that count on it, and there would be a backlash to take Donald Trump's term, a backlash like you've never, ever seen. But it's true. There's a lot of people in this country that count on Medicare and Social Security, and they're going to take it sitting still. Now, McCarthy said you can't just continue down the path to keep spending and adding to the debt. Well, that's interesting that he would say that. I mean, the Republicans are supposed to be conservative. But when Donald Trump was in office, he raised the debt by $7 trillion. That's hardly conservative. That's hardly Republican. And that money didn't amount to money spent on Medicare and and Social Security. What it amounted to was giving $2 trillion to the rich people, a tax break. You see, they're happy to give that to them. They don't care where that money comes from, and they're not worried about being able to afford that. But when they talk about our entitlements, or what they call entitlements, they want to cut us off. And that's just not going to work. First of all, they're not entitlements. You and I both have paid into Social Security and Medicare, and if I pay money to our government or any other person in this fucking country, I expect something in return. If I paid into Social Security uh, based on getting money when I retired, I better get that fucking money back. 
Um, and McCarthy went on to say, and if people want to make a debt ceiling for a longer period of time, just like anything else, there comes a point in time where, okay, we'll provide you more money, but you've got to change your current behavior. Oh, they want to tell us how to spend our money, McCarthy said. We're not just going to keep lifting your credit card limit, right? The debt ceiling is a legal limit on the amount of money that the federal government can borrow in order to pay for spending that Congress has already authorized raising the debt limit. doesn't create new spending. It just prevents the government from defaulting on its debts. Well, there's a lot of ways we could attend to this. I know Joe Biden's trying to do his part, and the Republicans, for some reason, have never come up with this idea. How about we give the rich, get the rich people, the wealthy corporations, to do something they don't do currently, pay fucking taxes? They make money in this country, just like you and I do. We pay taxes, and they should pay taxes. And if they paid taxes, we could afford some of these things. You wouldn't have to go into debt. If we collect the money that was owed to us, if the, if the rich and the corporate America paid their fair share, that's one way to do it. Maybe we could stop the tax breaks to the rich to the tune of $2 trillion. Or maybe we could stop subsidizing big oil. Why are we subsidizing big oil? These fuckers are having record profits, and we're paying through our ears on gas, but they're still making profits. Maybe we cut the subsidies. Maybe we put a little pressure on them to stop gouging America. There's a lot of ways to make the money back, but the only way the Republicans see it is by taking it out of our hide. And therein lies the problem. It's always been the case, and it will always be the case as long as they're allowed to do so. So it's a incumbent on us to get them to fucking stop. And the best way to do that is to vote those motherfuckers out. These aren't entitlements. I paid what I paid and I expect to get some return on my investment. Simple as that. All right. Now, according to a report from the Daily Beast, Jose Paglieri more and more legal experts and observers are questioning the sequence of unusual events that led to Donald Trump's legal battle with the Department of Justice over the search and seizure of his government documents he stole uh, and took with him to Mar-a-Lago. And people are wondering, how did this happen, that he was able to handpick a federal judge? Seems a little fishy. You don't... You don't think that Donald Trump might have done something underhanded, do you? Now, since the day U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon of the Southern District of Florida was handed the case filed by the former president's lawyers, she had issued a series of pro-Trump rulings that have baffled and enraged legal scholars. Even the Supreme Court said, yeah, this is bullshit. We're not going to listen to it. The DOJ, for its part, has been busy running the 11th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals in Atlanta, which has consistently either overruled her or issued stays favorable to the government as investigators ponder Espionage Act or obstruction charges. According to Paglieri, recent information on how the suit was filed far from the Palm Beach where Donald Trump lives has led to more scrutiny on how Trump's people game the system. Oh, God, who would have ever thought who would have ever thought 
that could be possibly happening. Now, when Donald Trump's legal team filed their court paperwork protesting the Mar-a-Lago raid, a lawyer took the rare step of actually filing paperwork in person at a courthouse 44 miles from Mar-a-Lago, and they got a judge to oversee the case that was outside both West Palm Beach, where the raid took place, and the district where they filed. Those incredible coincidences have led lawyers and legal experts to suggest that something may not be above board with how Trump's team filed their lawsuit. Oh, big surprise. Why are we just thinking about this now? Why not when they actually fucking did it? Why weren't we questioning it then? I mean, that's what should have been done. Donald Trump is stuck in so many situations where he's done something underhanded or illegal or corrupt. And it's all now coming to the forefront. Donald Trump is going to be so tied up in court with civil lawsuits, with criminal investigations and indictments, he won't have time to have a second Big Mac. He is going to be tied up. And this whole situation with Aileen Cannon, the judge, and I even... I use that term judge loosely because she's not. She's corrupt. And now they're seeing uh, that it was a little fishy. Now, I don't know what's going to happen to Donald Trump in this situation. But after being slapped in the face by the Supreme Court, you have to wonder if Judge Aileen Cannon is going to be on the bench very much longer. Clearly, she's incompetent. Clearly, she's biased. And clearly, she's willing to be corrupt to aid her Lord and Savior, Donald Trump. I hope this comes back and hits Aileen Cannon in the face because we don't need somebody like that in a district court. That's no place for a judge like that. Uh, You know, much the same with the Supreme Court. We've got to deal with that whole situation. We've got at least four Supreme Court justices that shouldn't even be on the court, but that's yet another problem. But Aileen Cannon may have more trouble than she ever imagined. She thought she was a hot shot. Well, she's just in the district court. She's not that high up the chain. She doesn't have that much power, even though she tried to exercise it. So we'll see if it comes back on her. I have a feeling it will. All right. Talking about civil cases. Now, in an interview with Vice, you know, Vice Network, Former U.S. Attorney Barbara McQuaid suggested lawyers for writer E. Jean Carroll amend her lawsuit accusing Donald Trump of defamation to include a rant he posted on social media just last week that might bolster her case. Uh, Isn't that interesting? Now, I'll remind you of the story. E. Jean Carroll is a writer. It was the 90s. She was in a department store. She alleges that Donald Trump either attempted to or did rape her in a department. No, he he did actually rape her in a a department store. That's what she says. Now, for whatever reason, no no charges were filed back in the 90s. But when she brought it out, of course, (laughs) of course, Donald Trump basically said, she's too ugly. I would have never raped her. She's not my type. So she sued him for defamation of character. Okay. Um, 
And then Donald Trump did what he does. He tried to delay. He didn't want to testify, and he didn't testify. But now the judge told him he has to testify this week. And since it's fucking Wednesday, it's got to be coming up in the next day or two. He's got to testify. And um, what Barbara McQuaid is saying is that because he can't shut his mouth, he may have made that case much worse for himself. That's no big surprise. Um, as Greg Walters from Vice wrote, citing the former president's latest attack of Carroll could blow a hole in his defense and set his lawyers back on their heels, which he has occasion to do. With Walters labeling Trump's latest war of words, words a really bad idea, he added, Trump's lawyers have argued for months that he can't be held personally responsible in the suit because his denial took place during his presidency, which is fucking ridiculous, and therefore fell under the, his official duties as a president. But by repeating his denial last week in an online tirade posted on his social media site, True Social, and blasted out an email statement, Trump essentially re-upped the activity at the heart of the lawsuit at a moment when he's not the fucking president. You see what happened there? Now, their defense was weak in the fucking first place. That wasn't going to work. But he said, well, uh, I should be <laughs> I should be immune because I was president when I said that stuff. I was within my rights to say it, which is not true, which was not going to fly. But that was his defense. So now he repeats the insults. He repeats the defamation of character like a couple of days ago. And he's no longer president. So even if he was to get away with what he said while he was president, because he had the right to say it, he just blew it out of the water. He fucked over his lawyers once again. I've said this so many times. If Donald Trump had just learned to keep his mouth shut over the last six years, he wouldn't be in nearly the trouble he's in now. But he can't help himself. He's not very bright. He's not... He, he, he doesn't understand anything. He thinks he can say anything, and he has total immunity. Well, this is one of those times when Donald Trump will once again fuck around and find out. He is going to have to testify under oath. Now, I thought I heard somebody say that his plan was to plead the fifth. Now, that's a problem. Pleading the fifth in criminal court is advantageous because the jury can't consider it in their decision. But in a civil case, they can. They can assume he's guilty when he says, I plead the fifth. So if that's his plan, that would be another fuck up on Donald Trump's part and will cost him this court case. Now... <laughs> I don't know where people are going to get all this money out of Donald Trump. I'm thinking he doesn't have much money left. If he does, he's got it hidden someplace. But he's getting sued by so many fucking people. If he isn't broke already, he certainly will be when this is all said and done. All right, let's talk about the House January 6th committee. The hearing last week opened a window into the chaos that preceded the Capitol attack as well as well, various figures who played roles in bringing it to fruition. Now, media reports and public hints from committee members we know 
to expect the hearing would focus heavily on Secret Service agents, their actions leading up to and during the siege of the U.S. Capitol. But the hearing raised more questions than answers, particularly after the committee shared warnings the Secretary or the Secret Service received about right-wing extremist groups planning to commit violence and possibly kill people on January 6th. I mean, I think that goes without saying. The intention was to kill Nancy Pelosi, kill Mike Pence. And you think about that for a moment. You have the president. Who's next in line to the president? Mike Pence. If the president and the vice president aren't there, who's next in line? That would be Nancy Pelosi. So apparently what they were trying to do is get rid of those people that might put pressure on Donald Trump so they could reinstall him as president. And clearly that hasn't worked. Now, in light of revelations from last week's hearing, a member of the committee has come forward to say it's possible Secret Service agents engaged in very criminal activity when they offered questionable testimony in previous sit-downs with January 6th committee to discuss their actions on and around the day of the attack. Now, Adam Kinzinger made those comments on CNN in response to a question about Tony Ornato a longtime Secret Service agent whom President Donald Trump appointed to be his White House Deputy Chief of Staff in 2019. Ornato is alleged to have have firsthand knowledge of Trump's thinking and whereabouts. So in this whole process, there's a lot of inconsistencies with regards to the Secret Service. We know they just accidentally lost a bunch of texts from in and around January 5th and January 6th, which seems weird. It seems coincidental. It seems strange that an agency like the Secret Service had a big whoops-a-daisy and lost these text messages. Seems terribly fishy. I think we've all thought that. But now we're hearing from Adam Kinzinger that this is possibly criminal. And when you think about it, if these Secret Service people testified in front of uh, the J6 committee and lied, well, that's a problem. And we've got uh, some rotten apples in the Secret Service, as well as the FBI and uh, the Supreme Court and in Congress. Our country is in a mess governmentally because we've got some bad people in the thick of it. I think when this is all said and done, the Secret Service is going to get torn to shreds. I don't know how they're going to recover from it because they were part of this insurrection. They are trying to hide information from around the insurrection. And this is essentially a law enforcement arm of our U.S. government. If If a law enforcement organization as part of our government is tainted, That is a real fucking problem. And you can expect more to come out about the Secret Service. This isn't going to just just be pushed aside. They're going to go on a deep dive on this. And, and, And like with people in Congress and the Supreme Court, a lot of this will happen after the midterms. You're going to see a flurry of activity. You're going to see indictments. You're going to see investigations. The DOJ is going to be busier than a one-legged man in a fucking ass-kicking contest because they got a lot to do.
Now, whenever you talk about Republicans, they would always refer to the John Durham case. Oh, he's going to blow it wide open against Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's laptop. It's going to get blown up. You just wait till John uh, John, uh, Durham gets done. Well, John Durham's case entered, uh, ended with kind of a whimper. He didn't find shit. <clears throat> and this is the cherry on top. A jury on Tuesday acquitted on all counts a think tank analyst accused of lying to the FBI about his role in the creation of the discredited do- dossier about the former President Donald Trump. In this case, Igor Danchenko was the third and possibly final case brought by the special counsel John Durham as part of his probe into how the FBI conducted its own investigation into allegations of collusion between the 2016 Trump campaign and the Kremlin. The two first cases ended in an acquittal and a guilty plea with a sentence of probation. It was just a minor thing. It had nothing to do with Biden. Um... But in this case, the last case, Igor Igor Danchenko was acquitted. So all this hubbub and all this talk and all these threats of John Durham and how he was going to blow the world right open with his case on Joe Biden didn't even fucking touch Joe Biden, didn't lay a glove on Joe Biden. And everything has fallen apart. John Durham ends up looking like a joke. You know, the thing about John Durham, I've seen him, I think I saw him on TikTok once or twice, and uh, I've seen him on YouTube and whatever, and he tries to play off like he's this tough guy, and he's going to blow it wide open. Well, after all this work and after all this time, John Durham hasn't found shit out. He hasn't done anything, and I'll bet you the Republicans won't say a word about it. They'll just shut up about it, gloss it over, and move on to the next thing. We talked about Raphael Warnock and the second debate, allegedly, with uh, Herschel Walker, Herschel the Brain Walker. And, of course, Herschel didn't show up to the second debate, which was probably a smart move. It didn't go too well for him in the first one. He looked pretty stupid, which isn't hard to do because, frankly, he's fucking stupid. Senator Raphael Warnock is signaling that he's ready to ditch his typically restrained persona in favor of more direct attacks on his Republican opponent, Herschel Walker, as they get closer to November and the election for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. Now, in recent days, Warnock, who has built his campaign around his work in the Senate and a record of bipartisanship, has shifted toward more confrontational with Herschel Walker. He used a Sunday debate that Walker did not attend to hammer the former football star over his history of domestic violence and leveled another series of attacks on Monday, accusing Walker of lying about everything from his academic credentials to his claim that he worked in law enforcement. I got to tell you, if you're running against Herschel Walker, you have a fucking veritable buffet of shit to talk about. He is, um, he's a joke. He's incompetent. And I think, I think we're looking at uh, um, Warnock getting a little nervous. There is no reason in the world, based on the type of candidate that 
Herschel Walker is, that this should even be close. But it is. Now, is it really close? I, You know, the polls will say one thing, but I don't know that the polls are accounting for a massive turnout of Democratic voters. And when they turn out, it's not going to really fit in terms of the narrative with the polls. At least I'm hoping that's the case. But Raphael Warnock, as we're uh, less than a month away from the midterms, is finally taking off the gloves and going after Herschel Walker. It's about fucking time. It's about fucking time the Democrats do this. For decades, they've just been the nice guy or nice gal and let them get away with anything. Now's the time to pull out the stops and go after these people. They deserve to be gone after. They deserve to be exposed. They are a danger to this country. And I'm glad to see any Democrat, but it should be all Democrats, going after these fuckers hard. Do exactly what the Republicans do, except be justified in doing it based on who these fucking people are and what they've done. All right, we're going to do one more story and then wrap up the Rational Boomer podcast. How are we doing on time? Yeah, we're about there. Anyway, a member of the far-right Oath Keepers who stormed the U.S. Capitol testified that he was ready to fight to keep President Donald Trump in office and was preparing himself in the weeks before January 6th to say goodbye to his family, he testified in a seditious conspiracy trial Tuesday. Guy's name is Jason Dolan, 46, a military veteran, pleaded guilty to a count of conspiracy and a count of obstruction of an official proceeding in September and testified in the trial of five other members of the extremist group under cooperation agreement with the government. This wasn't just a bunch of guys that got a little out of hand and got a little too excited and went into the Capitol. This was planned from the beginning. In their minds, this was a military attack. In their minds, it was justified and they were heroes. They never comprehended the fact that they might be terrorists and they were trying to overthrow our country and go against our Constitution. No way in their minds did they think that. Now, when we think about the Oath Keepers, it isn't that they just came up with this idea. We're finding out now that Roger Stone had close connections with the Oath Keepers. And we know Roger Stone had said in this documentary, uh, let's fuck the election. Let's get to the violence. That was his intention from the beginning. He knew that Donald Trump wasn't going to win. He knew that they couldn't game this legally. So he knew the only way to do this is try to stop the uh, electoral count, cause some violence, create some chaos and uncertainty, and get Donald Trump back in that way. He was willing to do anything. And these followers of Donald Trump and Roger Stone and the like, um, the Oath Keepers, were too stupid to understand what they were getting into. Again, like I said before, they're fucking around and finding out because now these people are doing time in jail and not for shitty little crimes like trespassing. There are some of those, of course, but these guys are going on trial or have been on trial for seditious conspiracy 
and uh, obstruction of justice. Those are big-time crimes with long sentences, and they got to be pretty nervous at this point. Other cooperating defendants are also expected to testify in the trial. Dolan has pled has not pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. Three other oath keepers have. Now, the fact that those other oath keepers have uh, have uh, pled guilty to seditious conspiracy is a big deal. That basically says, yes, we were conspiring sedition. And if they are conspiring sedition, they have to have co-conspirators. And who might that be? Other oath keepers? Has to be. It has to be those people who are trying to plead not guilty to seditious conspiracy. That made their lives so much more difficult when these guys pled guilty. It's also going to hit on Roger Stone because Roger Stone was connected to all this. All this information has come out in the documentaries. Roger Stone may get hit with seditious conspiracy. And that would be well-deserved. That would be like a 20-year term. And Roger Stone needs to be taken out of the picture. He needs to be put in jail for 20 years. He's in his 70s, so that would basically be a life sentence. And that is what Roger Stone has earned in his lifetime of dirty tricks. They call it dirty tricks, uh, but that's that's softening it too much. He's a criminal. He's corrupt. And he's a seditionist, an insurrectionist, and that motherfucker needs to go to jail. And if the Oath Keepers are going to jail, expect Roger Stone to be right behind him. At some point after the uh, midterm elections, you're going to see Roger Stone get yet another indictment. He'll have another trial, and he will have another conviction. The only difference this time around is he's got nobody, fucking nobody, to pardon him. All right, we're going to wrap up the Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I hope you have a great day, and we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.